I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 20th, 2015. Coming up, a local moonshine maker will tell us what he drinks and what he doesn't. We want the ethanol. We do not want the methanol. It's a bad poison. An ounce is enough to make you go blind and or kill you. And a local man will tell us about his Parkinson's network exercise classes. This is a degenerative disease that can get nasty. I'm winning the battle right now. And I don't know how long I can continue to win the battle, but I'll do what I can. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The U.S. Department of Energy has just awarded $2.5 million grant to researchers who will strive to improve wind energy forecasting. Groups receiving the funds include CU Boulder and the international wind energy company Vesalia, which has offices in Louisville. Vesalia specializes in environmental and industrial measurements. With better wind forecasting, the researchers hope to better integrate renewable generation renewably generated electricity into the power grid, leading to lower energy costs for consumers. And here at How on Earth, we'll look into interview some of the research on this project next week. In other news, most of us check ourselves out when passing mirrors. So do a lot of other animals. Dolphins, great apes, and elephants can recognize themselves in mirrors. Rhesus monkeys have never been known to do this, but research published in Current Biology last week shows that with the right training, they can. To provide the training, scientists shined a laser on the monkeys' faces for several days, a treatment that causes mild irritations, and monkeys, like people, poke and scratch at these irritated spots. After a few weeks of the training, the monkeys started touching the lasered spot exactly where it was on their faces when in front of a mirror, showing that they knew that face in the mirror belonged to them. The findings in monkeys come as hopeful news for people who cannot recognize themselves in the mirror due to brain disorders, such as mental retardation, autism, schizophrenia, or Alzheimer's disease. But the researchers point out that becoming self-aware about one's reflection can have unexpected side effects. For instance, in a video posted by the researchers, the monkeys are especially interested in using the mirrors to examine every nook and cranny in their posteriors. Worried about their appearance? On our science calendar, check out Boulder's Fisk Planetarium, where this Thursday evening you can purchase tickets to a live talk that features a world that is entirely inhabited by robots. It's the planet Mars, where remote-controlled laboratories are helping us study the red planet's atmosphere, geology, and evolution. Then, on Friday evening at Fisk, you can join Dr. Jeffrey Bennett for a talk about Einstein's theory of relativity. Friday's talk will also be the official kickoff to Bennett's national tour about his new book, What is Relativity? This Saturday morning at the Denver Science Museum, you can buy tickets for yourself and your children to meet Dr. Scott, that is, Scott Sampson, the museum's vice president for research and collections. He's also host of the hit PBS kids show called Dinosaur Train. On Saturday morning, Scott will talk about dinosaurs. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. Mankind has always sought experiences that are at least a little on the edge. 
Up next, we'll hear from a Boulder scientist who makes small batches of apple brandy from apples he and his neighbor picked. Shelley Schlender visits the scientist at the still in his suburban garage. She shares this moment when he explains the still and why he's so careful to save only the ethanol alcohol for drinking, not the methanol. But first, we want you to keep in mind while alcohol is legal, it's against the law to distill it yourself, even if you never sell it and you just sip it yourself. So our Boulder moonshiners will remain anonymous. I don't think they're going to come after me, I hope. <laughs> so what we have here is electric hot plate for uh, boiling, heating the still up. And then I'm using a stainless steel pressure cooker. And inside this orange bucket is actually the condenser. The alcohol drips out here. This is a very 21st century still. I tried to use the cheapest uh, materials, the purest materials, the very easy to put together, very small footprint. It's only about uh, two foot by one foot uh, footprint and very efficient. We're in Boulder. I wanted to use the least amount of energy possible for the process. And wood alcohol methanol is the distiller's bane. We want the ethanol. We do not want the methanol. Is it a poison? It is a, it's a bad poison. I think it's something about an ounce is enough to make you go blind and or kill you. If there is any methanol in this batch, which I doubt it, but if there is any, it comes off in the first three or four ounces. One of the big problems they'd have in the South especially is if you end up having huge batches of like a corn mash and there is any methanol in there and you're boiling up like 50 gallons or 100 gallons, that first quart could be pretty pure methanol. A whole quart instead of just a cup. Yeah, instead of just a cup or a quarter of a cup in, in my case, it's like a quart. And also the first stuff to come off most stills ends up being the strongest. So a lot of the untrained, uneducated uh, distillers would get sloppy and take that first quart off and going, hmm, this is really high test. Well, unfortunately, yes, it's really high test, but it's also very high in methanol. So it's just from, uh, you know, years and years of trial and error of people, uh, you know, going blind and dying. The moonshiners have figured this out, and they stick religiously to taking that first cut and not drinking it. How is your eyesight? I can see perfectly with my glasses on. Thanks to our Boulder scientist and moonshiner, who will remain anonymous. In a future How on Earth, we'll provide a more extensive conversation with him about how he makes apple brandy out of local apples without being poisoned by methanol and without blowing up his garage. You're tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Beth Bennett. Parkinson's disease generally strikes people in their later years, bringing with it tremors, muscular rigidity, and slowed movement that worsens over time. There's no cure. But there's growing evidence that some symptoms and many side effects can be reduced by doing exercise. In Boulder, a man with Parkinson's named Gary Sobel has started the Parkinson's Network exercise classes. Here's Shelley Slender's report. Okay, here we go. Four, 
These 20 senior citizens at the Boulder YMCA are working up a sweat under the determined eye of their 75-year-old instructor, Gary Sobel. I want them tired. Near the end, I ask them if they're tired, and if they say yes, I'm happy. Left, forward. As Sobel demonstrates, everyone follows. Walk backwards. Stop. Some of these students have stooped backs. For many, hands and feet tremble because everyone here has Parkinson's disease. It's an incurable neurologic condition that can make it so hard to walk and balance, many Parkinson's patients avoid exercise. In contrast, students here come several times a week. Three reasons. One, I have Parkinson's disease. Two, I need the exercise. And three, I'm here for the camaraderie. Yeah, th those were all my reasons, too. I like to come because I feel better while I'm here and after I leave. Here we go. Fast forward on the count of three. One, two, three. Go, 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 go. Stop. Backwards. Work backwards. In the three years that Sobol has been teaching these classes, he's helped thousands of people with Parkinson's. I've trained 130 instructors throughout the United States. One of the things we cover in class in great detail is how to raise the bar. you got to keep challenging people with Parkinson's. So they get to a point where they, they can do something now and they know they can do it. When you get that first time, when they get that leg way up in the air that they couldn't get up before, you got them. Because they say, I am a believer. And not only are they a believer for themselves, but they tell their colleagues in the class. They tell their husbands and wives and friends and and the word spreads that this class, these exercises really do work. Now, I want to emphasize, this is not a cure, but it does improve the quality of life in people with Parkinson's so that you can, your activities of daily living that you can do, you can, you're much more independent. We have people that are hiking, riding bikes that they haven't done. I had one lady call me and tell me that her husband spent the whole weekend working in the yard and he hadn't done that in three years. I've had... People come in and say, my, my wife or my, my spouse never exercised. And he or she comes in this class three times a week and loves it and wouldn't miss a class. All this almost never happened because four years ago, Sobel's own Parkinson's became so severe, he couldn't even get out of bed without help. Walking was a problem because I would trip and fall. Getting in and out of a car, I, I couldn't drive anymore because my reflexes were, were too slow. I didn't trust myself if I had to make a sudden stop. You're just too slow with your movements. When he was in his early 60s, Sobel had been an athlete who ran in 50-mile marathons. After his Parkinson's diagnosis in 2008, Sobel says doctors told him that the best way to avoid accidents was to avoid exercise. In 2008, when you were diagnosed, you were told not to... Crack a sweat, take it easy. So Sobel gave up on working out. Also fearful of side effects from Parkinson's drugs, he avoided medications. Then one day, his hands were shaking so much, he could not sign his name to pay a bill. And I couldn't read one word of the check. My hand dexterity had gotten to a point. I hit bottom that day, because I said, this is absolutely ridiculous. And I can't even write a check. To reduce tremors enough so that he could at least try exercise... Sobel started low doses of Parkinson's medicine. To strengthen his hands, he started squeezing water from wet towels. And my wife took the towels and the washcloth, and I watched her take a washcloth that I had just wrung out, and she went like that, and water came pouring out of it. 
And I said, this is nuts. So I, every day I took a washcloth, put it in the sink, and I rang it out so you could not get one drop of water out. And it took about six weeks, and I could write a check better than I ever did. From this success, Sobel moved on to strengthening his legs. The day that I learned what Parkinson's disease was all about was a day that I, I was hiking with a young friend. Uh, I was just up on the Sanitas Valley, and, and we finished the hike. And at the end of the hike, she said, you were much more alert today mentally. And I, I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, you were carrying on a conversation. And I said, you mean the other times we hiked I wasn't? She said, no. I did most of the talking. I'm not saying you weren't listening, but you didn't talk much. And I finally realized what she was talking about. Prior to that, prior to doing these exercises, I had to keep telling myself, Gary, pick up that left foot. Pick up the left foot. Every step. And if I didn't do that and I missed one, I would trip on a rock and I'd get down. So the response was not automatic. The movement of my rag, picking it up and making sure that I wasn't going to trip was not automatic. And, and there were some exercises that I had been doing, some rocking and some uh, lot of lunges. And that day, she was right. I never once had to tell myself to pick my leg up. It was automatic. And so therefore, I could carry on a conversation with someone and not even think about it. Today, my leg is still automatic. Now, every once in a while, my arm stops. I'm working real hard to make the arm automatic, but the arm will quit when I get fatigued. So it still needs, every once in a while, I still have to say, Gary, swing your arm, pick your arm up, swing the arm. So making it automatic has a lot to do with the exercises and why we do them so much. Pass forward, go! Success stories like these have gained notice in the medical community, according to a neurologist who specializes in movement disorders, University of Colorado's Heather Ean. There's been a complete shift towards exercise as a mainstay in Parkinson's disease and, you know, it's standard of care to emphasize exercise in Parkinson's disease. And there's been plenty of research that shows that people with Parkinson's disease can do various types of exercise in pretty high intensities and it's safe and effective. You know, there's also so much information about the other benefits of exercise for cardiovascular disease and bone health and management of depression and anxiety and sleep disorders and constipation. And because there are so many non-motor symptoms also in Parkinson's disease that could you know, potentially be managed better with exercise, um, there's been you know, more awareness of, of the importance of it as well. New research about Parkinson's is leading to recommendations for more exercise that's even higher intensity, greater duration, and higher frequency. Some of it is getting reconditioned. You know, a lot of people get um, what we deconditioned means that you have less activity tolerance and weakness and less cardiovascular reserve. And so some of the benefits we see when people first start getting involved after they've kind of gone through a cycle of doing less and less is a, probably a reconditioning, just generally a conditioning phenomenon. But there's also evidence that it helps with symptom management. Some people feel that they take less medications, or sometimes people actually feel they go through their medicines faster when they're exercising. But it's never been um, stated to me that that's detrimental for them. But there's also 
good laboratory information that exercise may be neuroprotective, and those studies are now being performed, you know, in human populations. And so there sounds like there's been a number of studies that are showing that this is truly making a difference for people. I can't help but think, is this improving mitochondrial efficiency, or is it improving hormone sensitivity and neurotransmitter sensitivity to things like insulin and dopamine? There are studies that looked at more like the exercise physiology of you know, exercise in Parkinson's. Clearly, people with Parkinson's can improve their oxygen uptake and their, you know, the cardiovascular aspects of it and their measures of strength and all that. So there are physical changes that happen that are clearly present. But then, you know, in terms of the neurological changes, there are animal models that suggest that there's an improvement in dopamine efficiency so that dopamine stays around at the synapse between one neuron and another for longer. So there's more usability of it. There may be some release of neurotropic factors that are protective for cells because Parkinson's is a neurodegenerative disorder, so the protection of those cells is important. Uh, Studies in humans show, or there's at least one study that shows an increase in the receptors for the dopamine, the D2 receptors, an upregulation of those, which may be um, part of the mechanism. It doesn't work for everybody, though. In Gary's case, he said that his symptoms, actually, they have gotten better, Mm -hmm. but he hasn't needed to increase his medication doses at all. In four years since he started doing this, other people told me that's not the case for me, that I've had to increase my medication doses, and everybody knows about the side effects from the medicines. Parkinson's disease develops and evolves very differently in different people. That's part of the issue, I'm sure. And we're lumping, you know, all different forms of activity into the term exercise, so There are a lot of different things that people do, but generally, you know, one of the benefits is preventing secondary sequela of Parkinson's. So in other words, as people start to develop symptoms, and if they're not treated or they're not exercising, um, they'll start to slow down, do less, become deconditioned like we talk about, but they also can develop stoop posture, they have rigidity. And, and those secondary problems can lead to what we call contractures, where people where joints are stuck and they're less mobile. Um, people end up in a stoop posture, which puts their center of gravity forward, and that can lead to falls. They can develop shoulder pain and various other pain syndromes. Pain is fairly common in Parkinson's, somewhat related to postural changes and the rigidity around the joints. And so some of the exercise is, is possibly addressing those secondary effects. Um, But, yeah, it's not necessarily going to slow the disease progression such that people don't need medications. In fact, it's very unlikely that it's going to create, you know, that much difference. But it can be very helpful in slowing the transition to disability. And that's part of what we're trying to do. I mean, it would be nice if we can also make it so people don't need the medications because they are fraught with side effects. But we're also trying to change that that trajectory towards disability. Gary also said that he tells people on your off days, really rest, that rest and recuperation is very important. So I think that most people are doing this maybe two times a week or maybe three, but he says rest in between. Well, the dosing of exercise and, you know, the recuperate, the the dosing of the exercise that really we should be recommending 
is not well known. We're still working on that. And the frequency is not well known. You know, the American Heart and Stroke Association parameters for the age group that generally has Parkinson's disease is to exercise most days of the week. We're talking like five, six, seven days of the week and to moderate intensity for like 40 minutes continuously if we're talking about, you know, aerobic activity. That's, you know, that's a, that's a pretty active um, recommendation, right? So with Parkinson's disease, does there need to be recuperation? Um, it's not, we don't, I don't really know. You know, the jury's out on that. But I think that you don't jump into to doing a marathon, you know, if you haven't been running. You want to progress slowly. But there are probably people out there that could exercise every day or most days of the week and do really well that way and other people who really just aren't you know, able to do that. And the medications also may be a limiting factor because they lower blood pressure, a lot of them. Um, they have significant sedation, you know, associated with them. Exercise for Parkinson's, what we're really talking about is a combination of endurance activities, aerobic endurance activities, flexibility um, exercises, balance um, programs, which are very important, and strengthening. It's possible to create a targeted program for people based on the relative impact that you know, their Parkinson's has on them and what they seem to need. Um, but in general, down the line, people need to be working on all those things. And medications do not improve some of the non-motor and motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And so we do have to look to alternative methods of doing that. And exercise um, can be you know, quite helpful for those things. In addition to the benefits of exercise, Ian says Sobel's classes offer another great benefit, the community support that comes from being in a class among others with Parkinson's, taught by a man with Parkinson's. You know, his enthusiasm for it is infectious, and I think that people really pick up on that and they spread it, and so it provides an environment that's really supportive, and people, I think they feel like if they see other people doing it and there are people who expect them to show up if they have this community in it, it's just very motivating for them. Here we go. Fast forward on the count of three. One, two, three. Go, 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 go. Stop. Backwards. Work backwards. Stop. Sobel says all these workouts are also helping him. This is a degenerative disease that can get nasty. I'm winning the battle right now. And I don't know how long I can continue to win the battle, but I don't, I'll do what I can. As part of doing what he can, He's also helped start other classes for people with Parkinson's, including yoga, tai chi, dancing, and circuit training. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. You'll find a link to Gary Sobel and his Parkinson's Network exercise classes on our website after we post this show. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Kendra Kruger. Shelley Schlender produced today's show and was the engineer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from one of KGNU's great banjo pickers, Fergus Stone and Mr. Scruff. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. 
and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Beth Bennett.